Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I am so happy to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. Well, tonight's show, we will have Mr. James Morgan III, who will discuss the benefits of studying African-American fraternal and benevolent organizations. In addition, he will provide us with an historical narrative on various organizations, as well as give us tips on how these organizations can provide some in-depth analysis of how ancestral communities functioned and organized within these groups. Mr. James Morgan III is a graduate of Howard University where he studied mass communications and African-American history. He is a very active Prince Hall Mason serving as Worshipful Master of Caribbean Lodge Number 18 in Washington, D.C., and as the Associate Grand Historian of the Most Worshipful Prince Hall Grand Lodge of the District of Columbia. Mr. Morgan is a member of the Falassus Society, the only independent research organization dedicated to study African-American Freemasonry, as well as the James Dent Walker Chapter of OGS. You can catch Mr. Morgan's monthly thoughts on a black fraternal history on the Prince Hall Think Tank, which airs the last Sunday of every month on YouTube. So let me give a warm welcome to James Morgan III to research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. James, I am looking forward to talking to you tonight. Well, thank you very much. I'm looking forward to uh, to the discussion. Uh, it's an honor and privilege to uh, to be a guest here, and I and I want to let you know this is a dream come true for me. 
uh, ever since I got started in my genealogy work, uh, I've been an avid listener, and I've been been hoping for the day one day when I could uh, be important enough uh, and famous enough to be on this wonderful program. I love what you're doing. Well, thank you so much, and yes, you are important enough to be on this show. So let's begin with you defining and helping us understand what is a fraternal organization. Sure, no problem. Uh, I define fraternal organizations overall, and and when I say this, I'm going to caveat this to say we're including we're not necessarily discussing Greek fraternities, but they're included in this as well, the college organizations, which people are generally more familiar with. But in general, um, I define fraternal organizations as being secular groups of individuals who come together around a unique and usually a secret initiation ritual, uh, an oath ceremony. Uh, usually they have some kind of guiding philosophy, and typically they exist for moral and um, philosophical as well as physical uplift, meaning, you know, sometimes you might have a financial benefit or death benefits or what have you, but you get those kind of those kind of aspects in other groups, like, for instance, in your church. You know, you might get some moral uplift, spiritual education or what have you. Um, you know, you might be in another kind of organization that uh, focuses on, you know, charitable works, what have you. But the thing that makes these organizations so different is the pageantry, the ritual. Um, like I said, you have a guiding philosophy, and you really end up having a whole kind of mythology that people uh, practice within these organizations that makes them unique from, you know, let's say uh, just going down the street and joining, let's say, the Boy Scouts, which even in the Boy Scouts, there's certain things you do there that only Boy Scouts do, <laughs> you know. Um, yes. So, so that's kind of the overall uh, definition I would give them. Okay, and so you're going to help us understand what some of those organizations are. Mm-hmm. No okay, problem. Okay, well, just uh, okay. Well, tell us about the various types of fraternal organizations, just so that we're certainly. all on the same page. Certainly, certainly. Uh, well, I break down fraternal organizations um, in two different ways. Um, it's particularly in African American history. Number one, you have organizations which are the African-American branches of pre-existing white established organizations, such as you have historically Caucasian Freemasons or historically Caucasian Elks, and then later on, through some means or method, African-Americans got a hold of the ritual or were, were initiated into the organization and may have been segregated against and had to form their own kind of sodality and their own kind of group because of whatever the situation is. And of, and of course, this wasn't something that was out of the ordinary in the 1800s or even really for most of, even down to today almost, because, I mean, you had white movie theater, black movie theater at one time. You had white water fountain, black water fountain. So it only makes sense in terms of community organization that you might have a white Masonic Lodge in, the, in one town and you might have a black Masonic Lodge in that same town. It just that was the mm-hmm. kind of the order of the day, which which we, you know, it, most middle schools can tell you that in general. The other aspect is that you have organizations that are founded by and for people of African descent um, that are unique to us, um, and you find in many different cultures and societies um, and, and subcultures within America that you'll find fraternal and benevolent organizations. All over the place, so that's nothing necessarily unique. But the organizations themselves might have been trying to attack a unique um, 
our unique situation as African Americans um, historically. Uh, okay. Within that, I, within that, I basically give uh, a couple of subsets. Um, I'll kind of go through them. If you want me to define them individually or what have you, I guess we can do that. Um, the first subcategory I give is uh, benevolent and service clubs. Uh, those organizations basically focus on charitable works. Uh, you have social and burial societies, which are particularly for people who uh, may live in a certain part of town, um, have a certain economic status, or some kind of a. You might have, like for instance, I, I always use the Stepford Wives kind of thing, where you might, you know, you might be the wives within, uh, let's say, the Glen Arden section of your town or what have you. You know, the kind of upper crust <laughs> uh, leadership, if you will. Uh, then from there you have ethnic and cultural societies. Uh, these organizations um, are very popular within um, immigrant communities, and even within black American history, you had a subset, particularly of Haitians, um, when you go up to like New York, that had their own ethnic cultural societies that existed within the broader black American experience, which we really don't hear about or talk about as much these days, but they did exist. Um, and, and those records um, are definitely ones that people might, might find of value. Uh, beyond that, you have trade unions, which are organizations that are centered around people who have the same occupation. Probably the most famous one that people will recognize would be the FOP, the Fraternal Order of Police. And I'm sure people see those stickers the same way they might see Masonic uh, bumper stickers or what have you. People see that little FOP star on the back of cars almost every day driving down the street and never pay attention to the symbolism or never think about what, what is the fraternal order of police? What, if you're not a police officer, you can't go in a meeting, but what are they doing? What are they talking about in there? You know, um, what, what kind of ritual or what kind of ceremonies are going on? Those are the kind of things that, uh, that people often overlook with, with fraternal organizations. Mm -hmm. um, and next up, we have uh, mystical and religious organizations. Now, these organizations may or may not be affiliated with a particular denomination or, or, or religion, but it, whether they are or they are not, their focus is on the spiritual well-being of their membership primarily. Okay, uh, you, have some org you have a lot of organizations that are heavily Christian-influenced, um, whether, again, they may or may not be officially connected to a particular religious faith, but their focus is on religious or spiritual um, upliftment and morality. Okay, uh, you also have a lot of temperance societies that were very popular at the end of the 1800s that kind of fell into that category also. Mm -hmm. uh, and lastly, I, um, my last subcategory is political organizations. Uh, the political organizations, they might have a ritual or an initiation uh, ceremony or what have you, but their primary reason for existence was to accomplish a tangible political goal. Uh, you had several organizations that are no longer in existence because they completed their purpose, particularly as far as our community is concerned with respect to abolition of slavery. You did have organizations like the Knights of, uh, the Knights of Liberty, for example, established in 1846. Their sole purpose was the end of chattel slavery. Well, when chattel slavery it, it was over, guess what happened to the Knights of Liberty? <laughs> they, they ended up transforming into another organization, but they couldn't still exist as the Knights of Liberty because they had accomplished their actual political goal. So I hope that kind of gives a, a, a good understanding. Right, it does. So help us understand why are these fraternal organizations important to family historians? 
I would say that they're important for a number of reasons. Uh, one of the main reasons is that they're important is because you would be very surprised at the kind of documentation that they've left behind. Um, some of these organizations still exist, um, but you'd be very surprised at some of the documentation that does exist on these organizations that gets overlooked a lot of times uh, by researchers as well as laymen uh, and lay women. Uh, you have, for instance, many of these organizations have established official publications, official newspapers, or they would adopt an already existing newspaper where they would publish the, they might not publish the secret ritual or what have you, but they'll publish election results. They might publish notes from the meetings for people who, for members who weren't there, or to inform the community about activities that they were that they were participating in. Um, what I find very fascinating is just how important the idea of death and burial was at that time. Again, these organizations came into existence at a time when you really didn't have social security and welfare. So these were the social security agencies of their day if you weren't in a mm-hmm. with, with, with uh w.e.b du bois if anyone reads the um the philadelphia negro he has a whole section in there dedicated to fraternal and burial societies within black philadelphia and he talks about he says every time i turn around the the adults in this in the city who, who are negroes they're in some kind of secret society but one of the reasons why they're members is because if they weren't if they hadn't had somebody's lodge to go join, they might not have known how they were going to pay for their funeral in the unfortunate event of their, you know, of their demise. So uh, you'd be very surprised at that. Um, another thing that I think is very important is that these organizations, even if your ancestor wasn't per se a particularly famous or prominent member, let's say, you mm-hmm. might just have mm-hmm. a record that they were a member and that's it. But when you get the history of these organizations, you can place your ancestor or your relatives within the broader context of the organization's growth, its demise, what, what struggles it went through. Um, you know, you can also find, if, you, if you're fortunate enough to get some kind of official records of a relative's membership, you're also going to find out who their friends were. You might not find their, their family, their blood ties necessarily, but you may. But let's say you don't. You, you, generally speaking, you're not going to hang around people who you don't like, we hope. <laughs> So mm-hmm. I, I I always tell people, you know, it's like that old adage goes, tell me who your friends are and I'll tell you who you are. So when you look at who their friends are, you might have a, a, an ancestor, let's say, who you don't know much information about. But when you find them in a fraternal organization, you can find who were the people who they chose to associate around. And when you research those people, you might end up finding some more information on your on your actual ancestor. You know, so you'd be, you'd be right. very surprised well, you know- that, that come out. Right. One of the the conversations you and I had was about my great-grandmother's obituary. And Mm -hmm. in her obituary, she invited, or the family invited, the Eastern Star Chapter number 69. Mm -hmm. And so, I, you know, one of my questions to you was, well, how can I find out information about the, the the members of the Eastern Star Chapter sixty nine, which is in New Orleans. Absolutely, and, and that's that's something that's a, that's probably the number one question I get in terms of the uh, genealogy community that I associate with. Uh, one of the main things I would suggest, especially in your situation, is that many of these organizations, particularly now, I'm I'm more of an expert with regards to Prince Hall Masonry because that's you know where my membership is, but many of these organizations, even if they're dying or dead now established official archives, particularly at historically black colleges. Um, as I told you earlier, uh, with regards to Prince Hall Grand Lodge of Louisiana, they have official 
archives at Tulane University at the Amistad Research Center. So anybody who's looking for relatives and wants to find out, you know, if they had a relative who was a Mason or Eastern Star in Louisiana, there's no reason why you shouldn't go to the Amistad Research Center. Um, here in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C., where, where my membership is, uh, we have official archives at Moreland Spingarn Research Center up at, at Howard University, okay? So uh, when you go to New York, they have official an official relationship with, um, with the Schomburg Center. So many of these places have these kind of records, but unfortunately, they go on, people don't look for them a lot of times. They don't it's kind of an out of sight, out of mind thing, I, I think, and, and so that's kind of why I do what I do now is to try to help, particularly in the genealogy community, because I know these records have been so helpful for me and some other people who I've kind of um, have worked with over the past few years. That I'm like, you know, if more people were getting their eyes on these kind of things, I know more information would come out about not only about the organization's history, but about somebody's family history, which which I think is uh, uh, is really what we're all here for in the genealogy world. Right, and we have a comment in the chat room where uh, True uh, says she uh, she found her granddaddy Ike in 1912, uh, mm-hmm. and he was a chaplain in the Masons, mm-hmm. and nobody knew that, but they, they nobody knew he was a Mason, so they mm-hmm. were able to find information uh, on her granddaddy. Also, uh, Angela mentioned that she most of the records that she studied they had death benefits that were associated with the groups, uh, which is basically what you said, that if some of them were not a part of these groups, then the the issue of paying for a burial uh, may have become a big problem for the family. So being a part of these groups certainly provided them with uh, this level of security, knowing that they had some type of insurance associated with being in the group. Absolutely, absolutely, and, and you know, and, and uh, I, I appreciate um, Angela's comment, um, particularly because uh, I have the, the fortunate opportunity. Last, well, no, in 2014, I went to um, my maternal ancestral home of Dothan, Alabama, and um, my grandfather took me through the old the old cemetery. Which he, he he did that a lot as when I was a child, but now I'm older, so I, I was begging him to take me again. Now that I was doing the family tree, and um, I went to my great great grandfather's grave who was named Porter Griffin, him and his wife Alma. And I must have seen it a thousand times when I was a child but never paid attention to it. But now I'm an adult and I see on his um his headstone the square and compass, which is the you know kind of the, the emblem of, of Freemasons. And I have the same emblem on my ring that I wear every day. So I said, Oh my mm-hmm. God, I didn't know that Granddaddy Porter was a Mason. <laughs> you know, nobody ever told me and my grandfather says, Well you never asked <laughs> But Oh, okay. What reason why I say well, that is, you know, is go ahead. Uh, reason why I say that is this: is that I know I knew based on my research and working with um a, with the Grand Historian of Alabama, um Dr. Ken Collins, who's a good friend of mine, that Dothan at one time had at least six lodges. Okay, uh, I kind of had a I could have guessed what lodge he was in, but I didn't know for sure. So what my friend Dr. Collins did was he actually went through the Grand Lodge. Um, official proceedings. Now, at certain point, very and I and I have to admit, this is one of the biggest disappointments for me with fraternal organizations. Is that um, you know, obviously money is always a major issue. After the Great Depression, you start seeing a lot of these organizations kind of not keeping good records as they as they, as they should have, um, primarily because of printing costs. Okay, so at a certain point, 
when you get into like the 40s and the 50s and 60s, uh, Dr. Collins told me, he said, well, they didn't put the name of every member in there like they used to in the 1800s and the early 1900s, which was kind of disappointing to me. But the good thing, the reason why I brought this whole story up was because he was able to go into the 1961 proceedings and he checked the death records. And sure enough, my great-great-grandfather, Porter Griffin, was listed in there among the dead, dead members for that year. His lodge was listed, and his, the fact that he was a member of the Grand Lodge's insurance and burial uh, benefits package was in there. And I was a, we were able to figure out, wait a second, that's how, he paid, that's how his uh, family paid for his funeral. Which he didn't really, truth be told, he didn't necessarily need it because he he did have some money in his pocket. But again, it's nice to know that not only was he a member, but the brothers actually paid for. He had been a member so long that the brothers paid for his funeral. You know, that that's a interesting tidbit, especially for me now. You know, kind of carrying that legacy forward. Right. Well, I, there is a question coming out of the chat room, and and it's focusing on a database. Is there? Uh, a database where one can check to find out, you know, where you can find these uh, lodges and the black fraternal organizations. I sincerely wish there was. Um, I'm hoping that in the in the future that maybe that's something I can kind of kind of work on. Uh, in the meantime, what I would say, what I suggest always is the first thing that I would tell anyone is to check with the elders or with relatives to say, hey, was granddaddy in, you know, the Masons or the society, the the, the, um, the American Woodmen or the Elks or anything like that. People don't really take those organizations seriously anymore, I think. So it's kind of like one of those like, yeah, he was, the people always say the Grand Poobah because they think of the Flintstones and all that kind of madness. But these organizations <laughs> did a whole lot. No, you laugh, but people, they, they, they do that, <laughs> you know. Um, they kind of disregard them. But when you ask or when you open up an obituary and you see, you know, uh, I, I just got literally the other day I got an obituary from my um, my great aunt, um, again, down in Alabama. And in the back it said the pallbearers were the women – it was the Women's Missionary uh, Benevolent Society. And so mm-hmm. I went to my friend Google. You know, uh, my, my, my good friend Shelly Murphy always says Google is your friend. So I went – and Googled and said, okay, what, what is this Women's Benevolent Society? Then I called around the relatives. What is this organization about? Then I called my great aunt. I find out the organization still exists. <laughs> you know? Wow. Um, yeah. And, and they do yes. have records. You know? Um, matter of fact, another aunt of mine was a former secretary of the organization. She said, oh, yeah, baby, uh, I, I can put you in touch with the current secretary. She got all the stuff. I gave it to her. You know? <laughs> So yes, I'm hearing it. Now, I want you I, – I do have a question coming out of the chat, and uh, would, would you research college campuses for information on these groups? Would you research college campuses? I'm not sure. Yes. Uh, well, that's sure, the question sure that's those. coming out. As far as Masonic, uh, the, the you mentioned going to the Amistad Research uh, Center mm-hmm. at Tulane University to find information on the um, the Eastern Star. Would you also mm-hmm. look at other college campuses that may oh, have oh, repositories? Oh, certainly, certainly. I would I would highly encourage that. Um, particularly for people. Um, if you know, like I don't want every state is special. Every area is special. Okay, but okay, some areas. Are, have a little more unique history than others. Like, for instance, like I said, uh, here in the District of Columbia, 
um, there were organizations that were just District of Columbia oriented, such as the Columbian Harmony Society. Um, when you go down into uh, New Orleans, for instance, you get like the Knights of Peter Claver, which is an organization I had never heard of personally until I started becoming friends with um, with Jari Honore, you know, um, and started talking to him. I said, whoa, this is, I, I never knew this. Um, in the Midwest, you have uh, significant uh, organizations such as the American Woodmen, which were very popular in those regions. So I would just say, you know, really research the, the black press, um, talk to relatives to get an idea, like, Certain organizations you're going to find, Prince Hall Masons, and, uh, we're, we're everywhere. We're, we're worldwide. Those, we still exist. We're, we were the biggest, still are uh, in that category. But you're going to find the, the Odd Fellows. You're going to find the Knights of Pythias Lodge or, or the Elks. You, those are kind of the big ones. But then there's other ones, like in, um, in New York, for instance. You had the New York African Society, and then you had the New York African Society for Mutual Relief. That organization died, I think, in the 30s. You know, um, mm-hmm. So... You, you'll find those big names, but th- but don't forget those smaller groups as well. Um, another organization which I think goes unnoticed, but did amazing, amazing work, was called the Phyllis Wheatley Club. Uh, the Phyllis Wheatley, Phyllis Wheatley Benevolent Clubs. Um, if you look those up, um, that's an organization that was created for the purpose of having black women who were working as domestics coming to these northern cities and towns or what have you not feeling safe living and sleeping with their Caucasian employers because of, you know, sexual abuse or what have you. So when you became a member of the Phyllis Wheatley Clubs, you paid your you paid up, you know, a one time fee for the year and that your your membership card would allow you to sleep in any one of the clubs all all throughout, you know, the the United States. You could just show up and say, Here, I'm a member. Okay, well we might not have a bed for you but you but you can sleep in the corner. <laughs> you know, um it, 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 it's it's it might sound odd to people today, but you have to remember the times in which people lived back then. There was no Facebook where you can find your cousin online and say, "Hey, where's a good hotel?" You know, we couldn't even stay in all the, in all the in the good hotels. You know, um, so this is really a survival mechanism that uh, that I would argue was actually transported over from Africa in the first place. So, so yeah. Right, and this is really interesting. Now, I know that you have a whole list of black fraternal organizations, and so I would like you really just to name some of those organizations and just just tell us when were they organized, just so that people could have an idea of how large these organizations are throughout the United States. Oh, yeah, sure, no no problem. I'll just kind of – I'll answer that real quickly. Um, and these are uh, these are also in chronological order as well, so people can get an idea of just how uh, how long this kind of tradition has been going forward. Uh, you have Prince Hall Masons uh, established in 1775, Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, the Free African Society, Philadelphia, in 1787. You had the African Union Society in Newport, Rhode Island. And uh, take Brown it a little Fellowship. slow, just in case people oh, are taking notes. My, my so apology. you have the Prince Hall uh, Masons uh, yes. established in Boston in 1775, okay? Yes. And, uh, and uh, how many people even knew that the Prince Hall Masons were established that long ago? Uh, not a lot. When I when I tell them that, people look at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, no, we've we've been around a long time. <laughs> um, you had the Free African Society uh, established in 1787 in Philadelphia. Uh, the African Union Society, which was in, uh, in Newport, Rhode Island, 1787. The Brown Fellowship Society, which was established in Charleston, South Carolina. 
uh, the Female Benevolent Society, established in New Haven, Connecticut in 1804. Uh, the New York African Society for Mutual Relief, established in 1808, obviously in New York. Uh, you have the, the Negro Moral Reform Society, uh, established in 1835 in Philadelphia. Now, here's where it gets kind of interesting. Uh, you have the Union Benevolent Society, established in Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky, in 1843. You also have the Grand United Order of Odd Fellows. Established, yeah, yeah, it took a second, didn't it? 1843 in Kentucky, you go, wait, what? 1843, yeah. In 1843, exactly. Um, I'll also, also caveat that by saying you'd be surprised how many organizations were founded in the north that had branches that spread to the south. For instance, uh, African-American Freemasonry established in the 1700s in Boston. But by 1848, you have the Grand Lodge of D.C., which I'm a member of. And mind you, D.C. is a slave state, or a slave uh, area at that point. You also have, mm-hmm. we had lodges in Virginia in the 1840s, um, as well as as far south, believe, believe it or not, as Mobile. Mobile, Alabama, and New Orleans even had them pre-Civil War, uh, among others. Uh, Grand United Order of Odd Fellows, uh, established in 1843. Um, another good, another big one that a lot of people haven't heard of was the United Brothers of Friendship and Sisters of Mysterious Ten, uh, established in Louisville, Kentucky, in 1861. Okay, uh, that's that's just a sample. That's not that's not necessarily every single one, but those are some of the, the big ones. Another another good one that people um, will hear a lot about on the East Coast is uh, the Independent Order of Saint Luke which was established in Baltimore in 1867. And that organization was huge at one point. Um, actually, was uh, during their, hey, their heyday, they were ran by a woman named Maggie Walker, um, who actually ended up, they ended up opening a bank. Um, they survived the Great Depression. Uh, you know, just, a, just an amazing, amazing, amazing history um, behind all these different organizations. And, I, you know, I'm not even going to pretend that we have enough time to do all of them justice, but... Uh, just amazing histories between all those different groups. Um, you know, out in right. the Knights of Liberty, you know, it's a whole, whole bunch, a whole bunch of them. Right. Now, a lot of these organizations, of course, you're mentioning pre-Civil War. So mm-hmm. are we talking about free people of color that are only a part of these organizations, or are you finding that they did have people that were slaves that were a part of these organizations? In terms of the pre-Civil War organizations, Primarily, you're going to, you're talking about uh, free people, but not exclusively. Believe it or not, not exclusively. Some of these organizations, such as the uh, New York African Society, as well as its the New York African Society, kind of died and morphed into the New York African Society for Mutual Relief. Okay, um, that organization you will find members who had been free, as well as members who were enslaved. Same thing with the United Brothers of Friendship and Sisters of Mysterious Ten in their early days. Um, one thing that I, th- I thought was just amazing is, like, first of all, where are enslaved people getting the time and the the cap, the finance, to have any membership in anything, you know, of that nature? But one, the thing that I found when I started studying this topic was that these organizations, in some ways, operated kind of as uh, as almost a savings account for these people, so that they could save up to purchase their freedom. And sometimes they would even have a kind of fundraising drives to try to purchase the freedom of one or two members or of a whole family to try to um, get them out of bondage, you know, if they could. And, um, you know, it didn't necessarily work all the time, but when it did work, that was somebody's life that was changed, you know, immeasurably. 
That is really interesting. Now, there's a question coming out of the chat about the uh, the purpose of the African societies. What what you know? What were the purposes of the African societies? The African the the, the African societies in New York. Is that yes? The African the Union Society, the Free African Society, the. Mm-hmm. No problem. And um, one is both, in Rhode Island, uh, and one is in Philadelphia that you mentioned. Yes. Um, the, the purpose of those organizations primarily is was to form a kind of a center of union for the African community. Now, mind you, at this point, when you're talking about the early, the late 1700s into the early 1800s, I personally don't define those people as being necessarily. African American, quote unquote, as we use the term today, many of these people are first, maybe second or third generation Africans mm-hmm. uh, in the Americas, and that's how they thought. That's why they named their organization the African Methodist Episcopal Church. You see what I'm saying? You see mm-hmm. what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. So one of the mean one of the reasons why these organizations came into existence was as a means to not only kind of try to preserve w- their sense of community and culture, but also to kind of legitimize them before the before the law. Because the the idea is, well, if we if some of us may own some land and some property, if we come together, if we put our money in a pot, now the government may or may not give us what we want, but there's no reason why we can't build our own school. Mm-hmm. Anybody who goes mm-hmm. to who's who's going on the Freedom Trail up in Boston would be familiar with the African Meeting House. You have to wonder how did it be? How did that building get built? How did that uh, that legacy of that 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 place get established well the people did for themselves the same way you know many years later booker t washington would say you know drop down your buckets where you are um so they 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 really were doing for themselves regardless of what the broader social structure was trying to do to them um okay. that's kind of the overall um uh answer i would give um the new york african society for mutual relief um you know they end up having you know great parades of celebration at different points, whether it was the, the end of slavery in a particular state or when the Haitian Revolution happened. Uh, they also would kind of serve as training grounds for up-and-coming leadership. You know, you're not going to go out there and say you're going to um, – well, later on when they start having um, elected officials, you're not going to just say you're going to run for Senate or go run for the legislature if you didn't kind of first come through these training grounds and the, the, the community kind of vetted you as well. Um, right. Now we have a question that's uh, coming online, and it's from area mm-hmm. code five hundred four. You have a question or a comment? Yes, ma'am. Good evening, everybody. Uh, Mr. Good Morgan, evening. there's a there's a new book I saw. Uh, I think a guy from France wrote the book, looking at African American masonry. I saw it at one of the major bookstores on the shelf in the African American intersection. Are you familiar with that book? Yes, I am. I actually um, met the author at a conference back in December. Oh, okay. I, I was just. And, uh, and, she, and she's she's a, she's a woman. <laughs> oh, it's a female. Yes. Okay. All right. I, I just wanted to put it out there. I had come across a, a, a new book there, and I'm, I'm enjoying the information that you're putting out, particularly about these societies, and they use the word African, you know, uh, you know, to, you know, kind of unify themselves, you know. Yeah. Mm. So uh, okay. thank you so much. Thank you well, th- very thank, much. Thank you. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, 
Okay, we're, we're going to take a, just a really, really, really quick break and come back because there uh, there are comments coming out of the chat, and I want to uh, continue this discussion, but this is going to be a very quick book. And uh, please, uh, when I come back, I need to get the title of that book. <laughs> quick break. Okay. Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This episode is sponsored by Write Books That Sell Now, the online course helping you write, publish, and market your story. Start your book journey with the totally free video training at writebooksthatsellnow.com backslash video training series. Well, you Mm -hmm. have been listening to James Morgan III, share with us information about fraternalism and African-American genealogy. Well, we have several comments coming out of the chat, and I want to start by uh, commenting on something that Jariana has put in the chat room. He's Mm -hmm. mentioning that county or parish courthouses often have ledgers marked miscellaneous acts or charters or articles of incorporation which contain the charters of local societies. So that's another opportunity for us to uh, look for information on the various societies and our communities. Now, another question that's coming out of the chat, do you think these societies are dying or are you seeing younger males joining them? Um, it really depends on the particular organization that that you're that, that the person's asking about. Um, for instance, with um, the Masons, you know, we we kind of have our peaks and our valleys, but I think people kind of know us in general. I mean, we're, we're probably the one of our saving graces as an organization is probably all the conspiracy theories and all that kind of stuff. I mean, we're probably the only well, we are the only one. Uh, that I'm aware of that's ever had like a History Channel documentary and you get all these movies and crazy books and stuff like that. Um, so because that, because of that, you know, sometimes it's, it's one of those situations where, where even bad press can be good press, at least at least it keeps us in the front of people's minds to some degree. Um, mm-hmm. Many of these other organizations that aren't as well known um, either are dying or have died. Um, you know, the Elks still exist. Um they're nowhere near as – at one point you had more Elks in America than you had Masons, black or white. But the mm-hmm. same thing with the Oddfellows, same thing with the um, Knights of Pythias, which I know the Knights of Pythias um, are actually kind of trying to make a comeback, at least at least 
uh, between the Carolinas and New York. I know that they're kind of trying to make a comeback. Uh, but many other organizations have just simply died because nobody um, kind of kept that, that torch going. Um, I know last time I checked the Independent Order of St. Luke, which at one time had over, I think, 100,000 members, I think they have one existing uh, lodge, and it's not even in North America outright. It's, I think it's in Trinidad or Barbados. You know, mm-hmm. um, Many other groups have just simply died, and they may have left – no record, but they may have left everything, <laughs> and it might be sitting in the library at the Schomburg or your local library, the Library of Congress, or what have you. Um, another thing I, I neglected to mention earlier was that, um, and anybody who does Texas research, the Prince Hall Grand Lodge of Texas actually opened the Wilbur Curtis um, Library and Museum that highlights it, it focuses on Black Freemasonry in Texas but they also have an excellent collection of other fraternal organizations for African-Americans in the state. They actually do have an on-staff genealogist. They um, were even gifted from the, uh, I believe it's from the tech, from the Texas historical society. They were gifted um, a, a collection of fraternal death certificates that people used to fill out that in, in the state. Well, what you would do is you would, uh, they would fill out, you know, normal information on death certificate, and then you would also have a checkbox to say if this person was a Mason, were they in the Elks or whatever, so that way those organizations could be notified officially that this person had died because Texas is such a big state, it's hard to govern and get information out, you know. Um, that's an amazing when – I, when I went there uh, a few years ago and saw it, I was amazed. I, my, my jaw dropped, and they have this stuff just sitting there. So if anybody's researching wow. Texas – that's a place to go, <laughs> and and like I said, they have they do have an on staff genealogist. You, what, what more can you ask for? <laughs> yes, what more can you ask? But you know how many people are even aware of this? Uh, you know when we go to genealogy conferences, you may have a few people. I know Angela Walton Raji will speak mm-hmm. on benevolent societies, but you don't have this as. Uh, a program that you're going to hear about. Now, I know that, it, uh, you know, the caller called in and mentioned a book, but there are some suggested uh, reading that mm-hmm. perhaps you could recommend that folks can look into just so that they could just educate themselves on the whole uh, fraternalism and uh, benevolent societies. So certainly, please certainly. give us a list of, of books and resources that we could check out. No problem. Now, I will do that caller justice um, and answer the question that you asked earlier. The name of that book is called Black Freemasonry from Prince Hall to Giants of Jazz by Cecile Revolge. Uh, not, and like I said, I know the author. Not particularly my favorite book. Not the one, not on the top of my recommendation list, but that's the one that we, I was asked about. So I'll, I'll put that out there. If anyone wants to read it, be my guest. But I have a whole litany of critiques. But I'll give you the books that I, that I would highly recommend. Um, okay, first, and take it a all, little slower. Take it a oh, little sorry, slower so that we can so that we can write down what you're saying to us. My apologies. Um, okay. The first book I recommend is actually one that I'm in. Uh, it's entitled "The uh, Great Prince Hall Masons of the 20th Century." Um, you, it can be purchased through the Philaxis Society website. Uh, I will send you the book, and I guess you can post it for everybody to get. I think that's. I think we charge twenty five dollars for it. Um, I wrote a chapter in there on W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, another one is um, In the Company of Black Men by Craig Stephen Wilder, um, a professor up in New York. Uh, 
Uh, ama- amazing, amazing book. I love it. Um, Black Square and Compass by Joseph Walks. Uh, you definitely want to check out the history of the shrine, the Prince Hall Shriners from 1893 to 1993. Uh, another fascinating work. Um, also, um, a lot of these organizations also have official histories. Um, I'm going to give everybody a freebie right now. If you go on Google and you look up United Brothers of Friendship official history, you can actually download the official history of the United Brothers of Friendship and Sisters of Mysterious Ten for free. Just go on Google, and I think it's on archives.org. Like I said, I'll send you uh, the link also, Bernice, so you can post it. Or you have it, so you can – we can post that also. Yes, to and are, I can post interested. it, and and it is excellent. I went through it on on Google. I could not believe the information, the names, whether someone was a slave. They would, you know, it had the dates. But I I enjoy just going through it, and it's an excellent resource. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I mean, like I said, there's there's so many. The, uh, another organization that was great that that I neglected to mention thus far. Uh, you have the um, the Mosaic Templars. They have an official history. And I think you can get that on Amazon. It's called um, History of the Mosaic Templars. It's founders and officials, edited by A. E. Bush and P. L. Dorman. Um, again, that's an, another amazing, amazing book that's out there. Um, and one of the things that these organizations, that these books, kind of have in common, um, is I like on fraternal organizations that are written by members because you you, you not only can you feel the passion, but you in general, these people have an idea of what they're talking about. They might not always be writing their facts, but in general, they'll have an idea of what was going on, at least when they were alive. Um, so, yeah, those are some of my top my, my top rated ones. And, and, and last but not least, I can't leave out uh, the book that started off for me, uh, Prince Hall Life and Legacy by Charles H. Wesley. Um, Charles H. Wesley should be of particular note to people because he handled the official histories for a lot of different black um, benevolent organizations, the Prince Hall Masons. He wrote uh, the book for the Elks, um, for several of the Greek fraternities, including the Alphas and the Bleeds. Uh, uh, I think he also wrote the history for Sigma Pi Phi, also, um, another black Greek mm-hmm. fraternity. So, yeah. Yes. Now, uh, you know, there was a question, and, and, and I have to scroll back up to try to catch this question. And it focused on uh, are most of these groups linked to religious organizations? And then the next question is why are they secret? Um, well, as I said earlier, um, some groups, some fraternal groups, are officially linked to religious organizations, like the Knights of Columbus. That's officially an organization for Catholic men. Um, same thing with the Knights of Peter Claver. It's officially an organization for Catholic men. Um, but many organizations are not like Masons. We're not. Uh, we don't. We 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 request that a, a potential member have a belief in a God, but we don't specify which religion you are or what what God means to you. We just say ask that you have a belief in a supreme being. Um, other organizations, they, you might have the kind of tone, a semi-religious tone necessarily, but there's no specified. You know, you have to believe in this. You have to believe in that. Um, but it just, again, it just kind of depends on the actual organization. Um, with regards to why are why are some of these organizations secret? Um, that's you know people are you know I, I, it's hard for me to ask that question because I never understood why people had such an issue with the secrecy aspect in the first place. Um, I would say a lot of it is more pageantry and pomp and circumstance than anything. Um, mm-hmm. 
you know, people now, like I said earlier, people kind of get these conspiracy wild theories out there, but a lot of it is more pomp and circumstance than anything. Um, you know, to some degree, it's you might hear about, you know, it's a moral test that you can't keep a secret, you're not worthy or whatever, but a lot of it, I would just say, is really more pomp and circumstance than anything. Um, and also, it's about not not if, if something's worth having, you want to work for it, you want to earn it. So if, if I go out and tell everybody everything that we do in my whatever organization, you know, um, it, 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 it exposes it to people who now they're not going to appreciate it as much. Um, you know, a, a lot of these organizations kind of get a bad rap because they're not well-known or people don't think they – they might not notice them because uh, it's kind of one of those things for the untrained eye kind of thing. But, mm-hmm. you know, the, I, I challenge you to walk up to a Delta – or an AKA, which I believe you're a member of a, a Panhellenic sorority, right? Yeah. I challenge anybody. I challenge anybody to walk up to you and ask you for your sorority's grip and password and ritual. Mhm. Mhm. I'm going to ask you in front of all, in, in front of all the viewers. Will, will you give me the passwords and the secrets of? Absolutely not. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You know, I don't know why people kind of get this double standard, but, you know, you have the same thing in college fraternities and sororities also. It's just, you know, that's that's part of the allure of a fraternal organization. It's all right. true. Yes. Yes. Really all now, yes. Now, back to uh, a question that was asked uh, much earlier. Other than the Masons and the Eastern Stars, which groups are still growing and are able to sustain the original charter that formed them in the first place? Mm, I don't. That's a good question. Um, well, like I said earlier, the Elks I know still exist. Uh, you have the um, the Odd Fellows still exist. You know, they're not nearly as big as they once were. Uh, the Knights of Columbus still actually still very prominent in the Catholic community. Uh, Knights of Peter Claver are still are still out there. Um, you know, again, I mean, you also oh another group I forgot about, which is very popular for anybody um, with Caribbean or Puerto Rican um, research on, on their mind. Um, the, the Fraternal Order of Mechanics. Um, most people probably never heard of them. If you look at them, you would think that they're. I, when I first saw them, I thought they were Masons. I'm like, no, they are a whole other group. They're still very popular in the Caribbean community. Um, so, so you know, again, it's kind of one of those things where you, you, when you ask around or when you start, a lot of a lot of people who are probably listening tonight have probably gone through Chronicling America a thousand times and never stopped to look at the fraternal page, the fraternal column in some of the old newspapers. But if they stop to look mm-hmm. at them, they'll start realizing, wait a second, I didn't know that there was a Mason Lodge out in Willacoochee. I had no idea that the Knights of Peter Claver had an assembly, you know, in this way out part of Mississippi that my family is from. I had no idea. But when you stop and look at it, you'll realize. And most of these newspapers, particularly on – and I think you looked up on Chronicle in America. Again, just go on there and look up, you know, uh, uh, Oddfellows in, uh, in Arkansas. I promise you something's going to come up. <laughs> and if you dig hard enough, you'll you'll find something that might be uh relative to your particular research. Right. So the message that you're sending to all of us is that we should consider as part of our research to look into the fraternal organizations 
because indeed, given the history and uh, especially those dating really far back, 1775 or what have you, there's information out there for us to find. Absolutely. And, and and I know a lot of people will say, well, I asked or I went and knocked on the door and somebody, they didn't have it or they you know, were kind of being secretive about it or have you. But trust me, if you contact that main head office or you find somebody who might be just as enthusiastic as I might be or what have you, there's somebody out there who has something. There's some institution or library somewhere that has it. And people, I mean, people contact me daily, so it doesn't bother me if anyone listens to this and contacts me online or what have you. Um, you'd be surprised at the kind of information that's just floating out there. I mean, the other day, uh, you know, I was uh, with, a, with a friend of mine and was showing them some proceedings that I have. They go, wait, that, wait, I know that town. That's where my grandfather's from. Well, you look at some of these names. Oh, my God, that's my great uncle. Yeah, you know, it, it's out there. Um, you just kind of have to find it. And sometimes it might be, you know, again, to me, you're not a real genealogist if you're not willing to go and get dirty and go in the attic or go help pull the box out the basement, and you might make the discovery. You might find something I don't know about, and I go, whoa. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, the beautiful, and the beautiful thing about it is you don't necessarily have to travel. I know I listed earlier some, some universities and stuff in kind of big cities, but you don't necessarily have to travel to those places. The thing you're looking for might be at that old lodge hall right down the street from your house where the men – you know, you just think the old men are in there, but when you go in and ask, well, can I look around? Can I get a tour? Um, is there any history that I can look up? And you walk in, and you'll see all these pictures from eight, from when that lodge was established in 1882. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. there's all these pictures of past members and past leaders and what have you. You know, as a historian, why would you why would you turn that? It's like a time capsule. Why would you turn that down as a as a historian or a genealogist? It just it's, it's, the only reason why is if you don't know. That's right. You know, in fact, I I think you should put together a quick sheet for us on mm-hmm. and on kind of what we should do and what we should be looking for, uh, because as you said, the information may be sitting right there looking us in the face. I mean, walking no through the cemeteries, you will see these uh, Masonic symbols on the tombstones, and mm-hmm. right there, there's something for you to to look at and to ask more questions. And so I think a guide to help people would be uh, extremely, extremely helpful to us. Now, Certainly. there's a, a comment coming out of the chat, and it's by uh, Jari, and he's saying don't overlook court cases because oh. of the money involved and because of membership disputes, people and organizations will often Suing or being sued. Now, have you seen any court cases of that nature? Uh, uh, without saying too much, I, I've seen them close. More, I've seen more of them, and I've seen them closer than I'd like to. Without saying too much, <laughs> but uh, yes, that, that's very common. Um, you'll have that, and just like any other organization, you'll have members who stole money. I mean, I have one, a very good friend of mine, who. Anybody who's kind of active in the black genealogy circles online would know. I'm not going to necessarily throw her family out there, but we connected because she had a great uncle who stole a lot of money. And we ended up finding the records of just a few weeks ago. I got the actual um, original documents where he stole the money. You know, um, mm-hmm. you know. You also another common aspect of these groups is it sometimes, like for instance, with um, with the Masons and Shriners, the white organizations might sue the black organization. 
to say, hey, they're stealing our stuff. They're stealing our logo or what have you. And that, you know, with, with Prince Hall Shriners, we took that to the Supreme Court and we won the court case oh. mm-hmm. in the 1920s. That case was actually one of the foundational cases that led to uh, Brown versus Board of Ed, which, by the way, many people don't know, Brown versus Board of Ed was in large part funded by the Prince Hall Conference of Grandmasters who set up a legal defense fund. You know, um, which reminds well, me, there's another you know, book that brings up. me to, to a question because someone in the chat wanted to know exactly what do these organizations do. You just mm-hmm. gave us an example of setting up this legal defense fund, but what else do they do? Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll answer that question. I also wanted to mention, I forgot to mention, the Conference of Grandmasters of Prince Hall Masons has an official history book that's primarily made up of primary sources. You just can't. You can't again. You can't ask for more. Um, in terms of what organizations do, again, as I said earlier, it kind of depends on that particular organization and what their focus is. Many organizations focused on um, burial and um, death benefits and insurance policies. Um, many organizations focus like like we do on scholarships. Um, you know, as a, I'm also a Shriner, uh, we have a national diabetes initiative where we give over two hundred thousand dollars annually towards diabetes research. Um, you know, some organizations have a particular focus on maybe not education per se, but they might say, hey, we want to make sure we're getting young women in schools. Like in a lot of sororities, we'll focus on that, or fraternities will focus just on getting boys to school per se. Uh, you know, there is a number of other things that they'll, that they'll work on. I mean, back especially back in the 1800s, 1900s, I mean, you had drives to try to get people to go down to your local fraternal bank or credit union, which was a very popular uh, aspect at one point in time, and why don't you get an account and we'll help you build up your credit and help you build up so you can buy a home. And your and your home loan is coming from your fraternal organization. You know, that that's that's another aspect that a lot of people took advantage of uh, in the early 1900s that, that you know, has totally – I mean, a lot of us can't get that together now in terms of finances. So, uh, it's just, I mean – just about anything you can think of, uh, there's probably a fraternal organization that did it. Anything that you can think of that will make life easier for people. I mean, you had some organizations that they're, they were trying, they were focused on feeding, you know, the less fortunate, feeding the hungry. I mean, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Phyllis Wheatley clubs focused on housing black women who were, worked as domestics and couldn't find safe housing elsewhere. I mean, you know, it was really just any kind of means of survival. They, they would figure out a way to create a fraternal organization around it. Right. Now, another question coming out of the chat. Do the white Masons treat the black Masons as brothers? Um, well, I don't – I get that question all the time, too, and I don't know how to answer that because, I, first of all, they're not the center <laughs> uh, or they're not the standard, let's say, uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, really, we're all brothers as far as in terms of Masons. Uh, you do you have this issue of recognition of who's legitimate and who's not. I don't want to necessarily bore the audience with that, but um, in terms of Masons in many, in most states in the United States, as well as, again, we are an international organization um, that was actually founded in England uh, in most states and indeed most, most countries um, they have now recognized the fact that African-American Masons, Prince Hall Masons um, have been always and always will be, um, a legitimate Masonic organization. I myself have, I'm actually an honorary member of a historically white lodge. <laughs> so, 
Mm-hmm. I mean, again, now, now when you go into the Old South, in the Old Confederacy, you know, things get kind of hairy down there with that. But, you know, in most, in all but eight states in the, in this country, uh, you know, we are considered legitimate. Which we always, as I said, we were legitimate regardless of what anyone else said. Um, so, yeah, that's... Okay, yeah. well, there's another follow-up question to that question. Can blacks join the white Masons? Uh, in here in the District of Columbia, they, we've they've had two grand masters of the historically white Grand Lodge that are of African descent. Um, this also mm-hmm. happened in other places, in other states, and in, in countries. Well, I just can't think of all of them right now. Um, you have a lot. You have a lot of that. And 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 again, I don't like making them the standard necessarily, which oftentimes happens. Uh, within Prince Hall. I mean, one of my classmates in my lodge was white. You know, okay. I, several, I know several Caucasian Prince Hall Masons. Uh, in the state of New York, uh, you actually at one time had an all-Jewish um, lodge that was under the Prince Hall banner, okay? Um, so, I mean, that again, that, that kind of gets really fuzzy in certain areas at, at different points in time, but... Um, Long story short, yes, it it, uh, it it has happened and it even has has occurred in places like Alabama uh, and Georgia. <laughs> so uh, we're not going to say we're perfect on that as an organization, but you know we're we're working at it. <laughs> I'll, I'll just kind of you're working that. at it. Okay, and then there's another question, and I'm not sure you uh, the if your question oh. is. Uh, related to what True has just posted or if this is a Mm -hmm. new question. So I'm just going to throw this question out to you. When and what state did the organization begin? And I'm going to say Prince Hall Masons because I don't know exactly what organization they're talking about. Uh, We were established in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, Prince Hall was made a Mason. uh, The accepted history is that Prince Hall was made a Mason in 1775. Um, Our first lodge was African Lodge 459, which was chartered by the Grand Lodge of England in 1784 uh, in Boston, Massachusetts. Um, I want to go back to that previous question real quick because I, I, I neglected to say, um, you know, one, one last thing on that is that sure. many of these organizations, you know, you had those racial issues and animosities when you had like a white organization, a black version, or what have you. Part of uh-huh. that animosity, and this is very key and important for genealogists, particularly in the South, so I hope you're listening, a lot of times within black fraternal leadership, particularly in masonry, you'll find the leadership in the black organization are the illegitimate mulatto, you know, biracial sons of white <laughs> fraternal leaders in that same area or that same state a lot of times. Or we're, or you'll find a lot of interrelations that are very interesting um, between the black mm-hmm. and white lodges um, on a genealogical level. Okay, uh, my own ancestor... Um, my my fourth great grandfather Joseph McBride, um, who I, I love talking about him all the time. Um, he himself was a Prince Hall Mason. He was born a slave. Um, I I eventually found out that his owners, his his family's that the owner's brother was a man named Andrew McBride. Andrew McBride was the grand treasurer for the White Masons of Alabama. And so I thought it was kind of interesting. This guy who he would have known was grand treasurer of the White Masons of Alabama. Now I'm not saying we're related. But this guy was the grand treasurer for the White Masons of Alabama for the whole state, and Joe McBride ends up becoming treasurer of his African-American lodge. You know, here in the District of Columbia, we had a lot of members early on who were the black relatives of George Washington, 
um, you do find some of the Hemingways in some of the lodges. Uh, so I want to kind of also put that out there too. If anybody's kind of trying to make those links between uh, black relative, black ancestors, and possible white relatives, something like that. Sometimes it wasn't that we, it wasn't that necessarily these people stole ritual or stole regalia or things of that nature. Sometimes it was given to them. I know one person who their ancestor mm-hmm. was told, they were told by their white father, you know, you're free. You know, slavery was still going on. You're free. One of the things you should do, join a Negro Masonic Lodge that way because only free men can become Masons. So if you're ever caught out there, you can identify yourself as a free person. They're told, they were actually told this in that family's history, you know. Um, so I yeah. kind of want to do that too, yeah. Right. Well, now I do have two questions. One, okay. Are young uh, is the younger generation joining these organizations? That's part one, and part mm-hmm. two. Do potential members have to be recruited, or can anyone just join? Mm-hmm. Um, for the first question, uh, particularly with masonry, I would say you know yes. You know, I I joined at twenty. Um, you have a lot, particularly in like college towns in the south. It's very popular for people, as it was as it was you know, in the kind of fraternal heyday of the 1800s, it's very popular for people to have plural memberships um, in different organizations. Um, You know, uh, I myself, I'm just a Mason. That's all I am. But the person who brought me into Masonry happened to be a member of Kappa Alpha Psi, you know. Um, So a lot of black Greek uh, members will, will make their way into um, Masonic Halls or Eastern Stars. Um, in terms of the other organizations, again, a lot of those other ones are kind of suffering if they haven't died already because people just don't talk about them and keep them out there um, the way they used to um, for the most part. You know, and you have, you know, um, people know the Lynx and Jack and Jill a little bit more, but um, when you get into, like, the, the Knights of Pythias, you know, um, had an amazing history, had an amazing run, but people just don't really know that it even existed to even try to take advantage of, you know, trying to resurrect it, let's say, you know. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So it's really sad. And, and I'm sorry, and the, and the second question was? The second question, do potential members have to be recruited oh. or can anyone mm-hmm. just join? Um, Again, it really depends. Um, You know, with, 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 uh, with, with the Masons, you know, we basically – Ask that you, you, main thing is you have to have a belief in God. Um, there's some other, you know, little little requirements, but they're not. It's nothing that you know, like you don't need a college. The, the thing that kind of separates benevolent organizations from the black Greek fraternities that people are more familiar with is that we don't have an education requirement, or you don't have to be of a particular economic status or what have you. As long as you're an adult, you know, in general, you know, if you have a belief in God and you haven't been arrested for you know, a, a, a high a high felony or something. In general, you can join um, some organizations, particularly with women. And this might help for geologists, particularly in a lot of female organizations like the Order of the Eastern Star. Um, you might have a bloodline rule where they had to be a member, they had to be a, a family member of a male, you know, of a mason or you know, a knight of Pythias or what have you. Sometimes those organizations would have those kind of restrictions on women um, joining. Uh, but for the most part, outside of that, you, you know, it, in general, anybody could join. Um, you don't. It, most organizations will never ask you to join, but not, they're not going to recruit. Uh, which is one of the, which probably ends up being one of the, one of the, the things that kind of helped the organizations die is that they didn't, and we don't recruit. Um, yeah. the, the idea is that if you live an upright life, and you're 
a shining example in your community, people will be attracted to you. So you shouldn't have to ask anybody. That's kind of been the, the overarching idea. Uh, right. So yeah. Well, I'm going to kind of now, uh, I was going to wrap up, but there's another question. Uh, no in the records of any of these groups, what type of information would what we typically see in these groups? Okay. Uh, typically, I would say outside of the actual membership rosters that you're going to find, which everybody kind of would rush to, I rush to them a lot, one of the things I think that goes overlooked when people look at official fraternal proceedings is that these organizations' style and structure was very bureaucratic. Everybody was delegated to do a certain task. And, again, you might not have something from your ancestor in their handwriting or their particular lodge or, or, or chapter, what have you, but they might have a district deputy that was over four counties or five counties or something like that. Those people would submit annual report of happenings in their um, in their district or in the county or what, or, or what have you that they were over, that they would report back to the state organization or to the national organization, and they would actually say, like I'll give you an example, um, somebody who um, I actually helped genealogically uh, had a uh, an ancestor who was very important to me, not because we were related, but because he was the um, district grand lecturer over um, the part of Alabama where my family is from. So it was very important to me also. He actually says in the minutes, hey, this year we adopted this newspaper as our official publication in the Southeastern District. And every week they're publishing the activities of the Negro Lodges. So I went and had to go find the newspaper and said, oh, my God, great. Oh, I, I know what they were doing every week. Um, you know, I also oh, that's able to, nice. Also, exactly. But I'm, how mm-hmm. would I have known? that they had an official newspaper that was just for that area of Alabama. I would never mm-hmm. know. Uh, um, right. Another thing that you're going to find in there is you're going to find the necrology, um, death records of who, you know, who, who passed that year. Um, another, uh, again, an amazing aspect, particularly for legal historians also, these organizations will record lynchings of members and attacks by the you know, white vigilante groups like the KKK. They would actually record it in there and sometimes they're even naming culprits and saying hey the sheriff the insurance agent all these people who are supposed to be authority figures are in on it they're the one they're not helping us but we're still going to record what happened so that maybe one day justice could be served you know i mean there, there was one there was one um clip from the um Alabama Masons i'm actually i'm i'm, I'm actually tearing up i'm not going to lie to you um thinking about it where they talked about how the the clan in that area had attacked a black lodge and burned it down and you know tried to kill everybody and all this kind of madness and some of the people were so bold when they did it they didn't even wear the you know the, the hood that that we know the KKK for wearing yes so, yes some of these people didn't even wear it they were just you know just attacking you know and the secretary is reading off the names of the people who in the white community that had attacked them and the grandmaster stops the meeting and he says, my brother, you will go back and you will read those names again. And for every one of those white men that attacked us that we know to have been a, 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 a white mason, you will call him brother. And you will call him brother because we will not sink to the level of unmasonic conduct that we will not refer to him by his proper title. Even though he did us wrong, we will be better men and be better masons. I mean, reading that to me was like, 
he had to pick me up off the floor. I you bet. Know? I can imagine. Yes. Just to you know, read that. Actually, yes. Yeah. Yes. They're, they're actually naming names, <laughs> and, and, and they're telling in their minutes. They're saying, we, we went to the sheriff, and the sheriff was in on it, too, so we couldn't even really go to him. We couldn't, our insurance mm. agent wouldn't help us rebuild, so we rebuilt it anyway on our own. You know, I mean, you find that, and it's not just the Masons. I mean, I know we kind of get the spotlight, but all these organizations, you'll find those same kind of stories again and again and again, those testimonies of oppression, um, you know, it, it, that, that still but have they, not gotten But it's documented. Course, you know? the, the point is it's documented, and it's, it's definitely a resource. Now, there's one more question coming out of the chat. Did okay. these groups do anything with veterans during um, wartime? Actually, um, veterans have had their own fraternal organizations. Also, um, you had the Grand uh, the Grand Army of the Republic, um, which doesn't exist anymore because it was just for members from the for uh, vets of the Civil War. You know, so they veterans actually have had their own fraternal organizations in and of themselves. I mean, now people kind of know like the VFW Veterans of Foreign Wars. Yes. That's a fraternal mm-hmm. organization. Everybody can't mm-hmm. be a member of the VFW unless you are a vet of a foreign war. Um, so you know, con- and I, have, I never even thought about that until just now. That's a great. That would be a great resource for people, for genealogists as well. Contact your local VFW or the VFW where your ancestor or relative might have been. Hey, do you have membership records? Do you have meeting minutes that I can read or look at or what have you? I mean, yes. <laughs> yeah, um, so some of these organizations actually. Um, one of the things that's very, very popular, um, particularly in masonry and Eastern Stars, is having military affiliated lodges and chapters and some some other organizations have them also where those organizations aren't necessarily attached to a particular geography but they're attached to a particular army regiment or you know battalion or what have you that travels around or is at war or what have you um within prince hall masonry our first documented military lodge was established during the civil war and was attached to the massachusetts 54th and 55th so anybody who's seen glory you didn't see the other part where they actually had a Masonic lodge that was that some of their uh, soldiers were were involved with, but that's that's documented history. Well, you have just given us a wealth of information. I think you need to just post a lot of this information for us, especially information on the African American Fraternal and Benevolent Society resources. You mentioned the Wilbur. M. Curtis, Texas, Prince Hall Library and Museum. You mentioned the Schoenberg, as well mm-hmm. as the Amistad Research Center at Tulane University. Are there any others that we should look into? Um, I would say the Mosaic Templars. Um, they actually have, Their official headquarters is now a museum and research center also. Definitely want to check them out if you're in the Midwest. Uh, I mean, I, could, I mean, I could keep you here all night. <laughs> okay, know? but we can't stay uh, all night. But I, but I, I really want you, uh, when you have the chance, to put together a quick sheet for us. Give us the guide and the resources of where we can look, because we we have a full house uh, of listeners, and certainly people are very interested in this topic. You have given us information, telling us their meetings. We, we're learning more about, you know, what happened in those communities. And this is valuable information for us to research. Absolutely. And just as you said, you know, go in and chronicle in America. 
put in the information, and you will be surprised at what you find. Not to mention, Google is our friend, as you Absolutely. said earlier. And, 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 and obituary. I mean, I mean, I'm gonna tell you, we're genealogists. Go back and look at your obituaries that you already have. You'd be surprised. Go back and look at them again and read, read real close. Who were the pallbearers? You know, what organizations are listed in your answer, your relatives' um, obituary that you that you skipped over completely? Go back and look at it. I mean, you'll you be surprised sometimes at what you'll find there. Um, I would also encourage people um, to join. Um, we actually have started a new group on Facebook. It has very few members right now, but hopefully after tonight we'll have a lot more. Um, we have a fraternal and benevolent history um, for African Americans group on Facebook. You can actually go on, go on right now and just join. Um, I also would, would encourage people to join um, fraternal history for fraternal history for genealogists as well, which is not exclusive to African Americans. But again, there's a wealth of resources that are out there that have been posted also already. That you know, free ninety nine. You can't beat it. <laughs> you can't beat it. And I just I see something coming out of the the uh, chat that's stating that you will be speaking at the International Black Genealogy Summit in September on this topic. So those of you who want to hear uh, James Morgan III with his uh, discussion of uh, fraternal and benevolent societies, this is a a place for you to come. Well, James, I want to thank you so very much for joining us tonight. And everyone, please remember, your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday. Now, I want to just reiterate that this show is sponsored by Write Books That Sell Now, the online course helping you write, publish, and market your story. Start your book journey with the totally free video training at writebooksthatsellnow.com backslash video training series. This show is also sponsored by, hey, me, Bernice BB's Genealogy Research and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. Everyone, I look forward to you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Mr. Morgan. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I look forward to to seeing you sometime soon. Okay.